Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Um, we are in Isaiah what? Isaiah 64 this morning, Isaiah chapter 64, and we're going to be looking at a continuation of last Sunday's message that we started, and it's a series that we're just simply calling Open the Heavens, and it's a line that comes right out of Isaiah's prayer to God as God's prophet praying to God for God to send revival upon God's people. Right, and we talked about last Sunday how revival is something that we all have different images or pictures or ideas of what it looks like or what a revival really is. Um, but we have to understand that revival is something that we all need. It's not something that we, can, that we can conjure up. It's not something that we have a formula to make happen. It is something that we must invite God to do, right? We saw from that prayer that if we truly want revival, we have to give God an open invitation to come down, right? When Isaiah said in verse number one, he says, if you would just split the heavens or rend the heavens or open the heavens and come down. Now, what we learned by that open invitation is we have to answer this question. If we really want to see revival, if we really want to see revival, we have to be willing for God to show up and do his thing without standing in the way. A lot of times what we want is we want God to move, but we want him to move according to our agenda. But you see, true revival is when we let go of our agenda and we give God control. And we let God do what he wants to do in us and through us. It led to a piercing question last Sunday is, do I truly and honestly want revival? Because here's the kicker about revival. We often look out and say, man, everybody's crazy. You ever, you ever, you ever, you ever said that before? You ever heard somebody say that before? You know, everybody says everybody's crazy except you. Right? So what we oftentimes think about with revival, we say, man, God's God to send revival down. We usually think what we're saying is we need God to get these other people, these other crazies around here right with him so that I can live normally because I'm already right with him, right? You know where revival usually has to start? Right here. Somebody once said that if you want to pray for revival, the best way to do it is draw a circle and stand in the circle and say, God, send revival and start in the circle. But a lot of times what we do is we say, no, I have an idea of what revival looks like and I know exactly what God needs to do and he needs to send this self-proclaimed revival. But what revival really is, is letting go and letting God do what he's going to do. Today we're going to look at a little more of that prayer and ask another important question. What do we really expect from God? Do I really want God to send his presence down upon my life? And this, this next question this morning is, what do we really expect from God? Do I really have a faithful expectation that God can? And do I have an expectation that God will work? What I mean is, do we really trust that God is going to do his thing? And it's easier said than done. That we want God to work and I trust God to work. Just like I was talking to these, these boys and girls up here this morning, right? That God is big. He holds the universe, all of the universes in the expanse of the palm of his hand. Yet we sometimes have a hard time saying, Lord, I got more month than money. I'm trusting you, right? We got a hard time trusting him sometimes. See, sometimes our prayers are not answered the way we would like them to be, pray, be answered because we don't pray them with the trust that God wants us to pray them in. 
I'm not trying to get into prosperity gospel or anything like that, but we have a big God. And that means that it lays on us to trust really big too, to trust him for big things. See, Isaiah's hope in our text is for the presence of God to come down and for the glory of God to fall upon the earth because he has an holy expectation that God can and will do something amazing. Now, we can't make God do anything. There's no magic formula. There's no secret words. God is going to work according to his agenda. But when we start praying for revival, something happens. It opens us up and gets us on board with what he wants to do. And so that when he moves, I don't know about you, but when God moves and when God comes down, I want to be part of that. I don't want to be on the outside looking in. I want to be on the inside having a part in that. And so like I said in the last message from this series, we looked at how Isaiah invited God to send revival. We saw that it was a desperate invitation where Isaiah, the man who had a glimpse of the true glory and the splendor of God in Isaiah 6, like we talked about with these kids just a minute ago. Not many people on earth were given the vision of the throne room of God. Isaiah was given a vision. John, the revelator, was given a vision that he pins down in the book of Revelation. Not many people are given that vision. But when Isaiah saw that, that enhanced his expectation of what God can and will do. The problem with us today, and this is not necessarily a problem that we generate on our own, but it's a problem because we just haven't been given that vision. We have been given the vision in words, but not in pictures. The problem we have is our view of God, whatever your view of God is, it's not big enough. It's just not big enough. Our minds can't comprehend the vastness of God and the vastness of his ability and the vastness of his majesty. We just can't comprehend that. We just can't. And so in some ways, we're not capable of that. And so that's not on us. But in other ways, we minimize God's, we minimize God's bigness in our life when we don't give him the credit and the praise for what he's doing. So this morning, I want to look this morning at uh, Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 5. But if we remember this, let's keep this definition of revival in, our, in the back of our minds. Revival is when God comes down because God's people begin looking up. Revival is what happens when God comes down because God's people begin looking up. So let's look at our text this morning. Isaiah says, oh, if only you would tear the heavens open. You may, your translation may say, rend the heavens, or if only you would open the heavens, or split the heavens and come down. That, that, that word tear, rend, split, man, that's like, that's like a violent word, right? You don't think something very nice when somebody tears or splits or rends something open. It's something like, man, just, just, just break it open with your power and your might. And he says, so that the mountains would quake at your presence, just as the fire kindles brushwood and fire boils water to make your name known to your enemies, so that the nations would tremble at your presence. When you did awesome works that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you that acts on the behalf of those who wait for him. You welcome the holy, you welcome the one who joyfully does what is right. Underline that, circle that, remember that, okay? Because this tells us what we do in the midst of waiting. We continue to do what is right. They remember you in your ways, but we have sinned and you were angry. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? Father, I pray this morning that you would speak through your word, Holy Spirit. Move in this place this morning, and I pray that you would captivate us by your truth, and I pray in the name of Christ that what the devourer would want to do to distract, 
I pray that in your power and in your might, you would just hold him at bay so that you may work this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. And the church says, amen. In this prayer, we see that Isaiah was a man who knew what to expect when it came to the ability and the power of God. Remember over in Isaiah 6, he sees this God who is mighty and his train fills the temple with his glory. And he's got these majestic servants called seraphim that are flying around and they are singing to him. And the, all, everything Isaiah sees is just amazing. And he is just on overload. And what is his response? I can't speak. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. Here's the thing. In the presence of God, we come to understand just how much we need him. And just how unlike him we are. Even though we're created in his image. In the presence of God, we begin to see just what our sin has done to destroy that image. Just what it has done to separate us from him. But he has seen God's glory firsthand in the vision in chapter 6. And he longed for more of the same. He knows what God did in previous generations of God's people. We're going to talk about that a little bit more here in the message as well. He had seen the power of God. He knows God can work. This is not a man who is struggling to trust God. This is a man who has a full expectation of the ability and the power of God to move in a mighty way and to do miracles. Isaiah had an expectation and it only fueled his desire for revival. You know what happens when we have a holy expectation of a holy God? It changes the way we pray. It changes the way we see things. It changes the way we interact with our anxieties and we interact with our fears because we know that there is a God who sits enthroned above all of that stuff. And if we are his, there is nothing that can touch us unless it is God's holy plan for our lives. And he says that my thoughts are good for you. They're not for evil. So he can be trusted. So let me apply this expectation of Isaiah to us today. As a church of Jesus Christ, like Isaiah, for centuries before us, we need to have a holy desire fueled by a holy expectation of God's glory and power. And I mean to have a desire that is based upon not just what you've seen God do in your life in the past, but to learn about what God has done in church in ages past and in communities and in nations and in, world and in the world through revival in ages past. Because that is the same God that works today. It's really tempting to think, man, the God that sinned and shook the mountains, man, I just wish we had that same God today. Folks, we do. We do have that same God today. We have to have that holy expectation of him as well. See, the church's greatest desire should be to have the greatest presence and touch of God on it. Our church's greatest desire is not to have the fullest bank account. It's not to have the most luxurious situation. Our church's greatest desire should have the fullest presence of God on it as possible. Because if you have the presence of God, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you're worshiping. If you have the presence of God, man, you've got everything that you need. We need to allow nothing to hinder the power and the work of God to accept nothing less than true, pure, heartfelt worship and praise and to seek nothing outside the truth of God's pure and holy word. That we should value nothing but the will of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And as far as our worship goes, there was this old preacher who said this, the Sunday morning service needs to be that holy hour of worship. Well, or hour and 15 to 20 to 30 minutes of worship, okay? Where God rends the heavens and pours out his glory on the church. This time is sacred. What we do here as we worship is sacred. When we gather, we gather in his presence. 
And, and, it, and it may look different over the, over the years and over the generations and in cultures, but the principle is still the same. We gather to meet with God, to worship him, and he meets with us. Just like in the Old Testament, when they would gather around the mountain and he would shake the mountain, he would speak to his people. That's what the worship service can be. That he would speak to us. When we leave here today, it should be clear that we met with him. How many of us come in, we sit, we sing, we soak, we walk out, and it's all gone before we even get in the car? Folks, it shouldn't be like that when we truly meet with a holy God. So this morning, what is our expectation of God? A lot of times, we get what we expect, right? So the question is, what do we expect when it comes to revival? Number one, we need to have an expectation that God will do great things. We need to have an expectation that God will do great things. Now, I need to go fast, so that means you need to listen fast, all right? And that means I, I, I got more on me to do that, right? Most of us will attest to and agree to the fact that God is great, right? If I say God is good, what will you say? All the time. And all the time, what? God is good. That is more than a mantra. That is truth, right? God is great, but the truth is the greatest imagination of God's greatness greatly falls short of his true greatness, did you catch that? The greatest imagination of his greatness greatly falls short of his true greatness. That means whatever your view of God is, it's just not big enough. Isaiah found this out in Isaiah 6, right? When he went and he had that vision and he's like, man, I've never seen anything like this before. Somebody sent me this picture of the seraphim. And it was drawn out as it was actually described in the Bible. It is some freaky Halloween horror movie type stuff. It's not the pretty little precious moments angel that sits with the halo around its head. It's some, it's some awe-inspiring stuff, right? It's otherworldly because they are otherworldly. They are heavenly. See, most of us will attest to his greatness, but we just have stopped short of fully investigating how great he is. See, we have a great God that does great things. Our text says in verse number three that Isaiah remembers that God did awesome works that we did not expect. In the King James, it renders as he did terrible things which we did not look for. Now, in our vernacular today, we say that we're terrible and we're thinking, man, God did terrible things. What it's saying is, and when you read that in the 1600s, you would read that as he did awesome things. He did amazing things, things that just could not be explained. It comes from the Hebrew word yare. It's works that demand awe and reverence, works that invoke fear or godly awe. It notes this awestruck wonder of seeing God do something that no one else can do, and it can't be explained as anything other than God's mighty hand. Let me ask you something. Do you have any yare moments in your life? When you look back at your life and you see some things, or you remember things that were happening, or a mountain that was right in your way, and the only reason you're still standing today is because God moved his hand. Do we have those types of moments in our life? Or do we have moments in history where we look back or people that we know that we hear stories of that or when we look in the word of God, we see evidence of God's mighty hand all over the place. But oftentimes what we do is we say, yeah, God's good. He's great all the time, all the time God's good. What's he gonna do great next? Because I need him to do something good now. How quick we are to forget, Right? What kind of Yare works has God done in your lifetime? Here was a Yare work that God did that Isaiah remembered that he was talking about and God reminded God's people all the time. Every time they would stray, God took them back to one place. Where was it? Took them back to Egypt and what he did to get them out, right? If you remember the story, 
They're in slavery. They're in bondage for generations to Egypt. And God wants his people out of there. So he sends 10 plagues to convince Pharaoh to finally let them go. And after the 10th plague, Pharaoh for a moment says, fine, get out of here. And it's not, I've noticed God's greatness. I'm just so sick and tired of seeing God's hand fall on me. See, there's a difference in being tired of God's chastisement and being truly repentant for our sins. And so Pharaoh was just tired of God's chastisement. So he says, fine, get out of here. But here's the thing. After a little bit, Pharaoh was like, no, we ain't doing this. And so he sends his army out to go get them. And what what does God do? The Israelites have come to the edge of the Red Sea and there's this giant ocean or body of water in front of them. And they hear thunder in the distance, only it's not thunder. It's the chariots of the world's greatest military power at that time coming at them and pressing down on them. And you know what the Israelites said? Man, we should have never left. Now we're going to be consumed. Why did God get us out of here? Why did he send all of, those command, all, of those, uh, all of those plagues on us if he was just going to let us perish out here at the seashore? And God says to Moses, put your staff in the water. And Moses, in faith of a great God, puts his little staff in the middle of that great body of water. And that water splits just like, just like this room. And they walk across it on dry ground. And then as Pharaoh's army kind of moves, you've all seen Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, what happens, right? All the armies in there and the water just closes in and consumes the world's greatest military power. Why? Because no military power is too great for our great God, right? God proves himself time and time and time and time again. Each one of us have that Red Sea experience. It may not be that dramatic, But we have those moments when we thought there is no way for me to get out of this. And God somehow makes a way. When we begin praying with that in mind, it prepares our hearts for revival. Each one of us have that. The second thing we have to understand about about the fact that he gives us revival is that those who need revival the most are often the ones who are expecting it the least. Because we've been beaten down. We've been beaten down by disappointment, by discouragement. By seeing it look like God do stuff for everybody else except for little old me. And oftentimes the ones who need revival in their life the most are the ones who expect it the least. And here's what Isaiah says in verse number three. He says, we did not expect your mighty works. He says, you moved in mighty ways and we didn't expect them. And we didn't look for them. It is human nature to look everywhere but God. It is human flesh nature to look everywhere but God. But church, we've been given a new nature. One that first and foremost can and should look to God first. While Pharaoh's army was off in the distance and in hot pursuit, what did the people say? Man, we were better off in slavery. At least we weren't going to die at the hand of Pharaoh. It was better to be a slave at the hand of Pharaoh than to die at his hand. And they began to work on a plan to surrender and they thought they were beaten. They were about to give up. They were settling in for defeat. And after seeing God bring them through 10 rounds like a heavyweight fight and they were about to forfeit right before God delivered the knockout blow. God sometimes sends revival at the moment when it looks like there is nothing left to do. God sends it in then. You know why? Because we have nowhere else to turn. And that has finally put us in the proper place. So the question this morning to us is, are we still looking for and expecting God to do great things? These folks who had seen God do 10 amazing things just days before were already forgetting God's power. 
Don't think that you can't forget God's power because we can. Satan makes sure that we are forgetful people when it comes to God's goodness. Do you find yourself just going through the motions, hammering it out sometimes just to get through the day and the week, not expecting anything special? See, I think the church is in a dangerous place because we forget just how great God is and what mighty things he's capable of doing. You know why? Because in our modern society, we have an explanation for everything. Right? We have just an explanation for it. I watched a, I watched a History Channel special on how, how these 10 plagues that took place in Egypt were actually not God's hands, but they were just like natural phenomena that have never happened before and never happened again, but they just happened there in that cluster of time. And it wasn't God. It was just, you know, science. Well, it takes more faith, right? Thinking we have to water down and compromise God's truth in order to see anyone show up or hear what God has to say, much less we see him radically change a life or a community. Here's what happens. When we begin to turn our back on the great God, we begin to lose respect for what he does and we begin to think that church is something we're supposed to build rather than he's supposed to build. And we begin to think that Christianity is something that we're supposed to make known rather than what he's going to do just using us, right? And so what we do is we say, oh man, people don't want to hear the truth as much anymore. So what do we do? We got to find a way to make it more palatable. So they don't like this, this, and this. So let's not talk about that. But let's talk about this over here so that people still come. All the while, people are dying in spiritually anemia because they're not hearing the truth Amen. that sets people free. See, much like the Israelites who have seen God do amazing things in the past, we see ourselves backed against this cultural wall. Thinking, man... Christianity may get canceled in our culture. Okay. Cultures in the past have canceled Christians. Guess what? God moves to another place and starts doing amazing things too. And guess what? He never leaves the remnant alone. What would happen if instead of tapping out like the Israelites were ready to do, we were more like Moses and we stood in bold faith? What if instead of being like the people of Isaiah's day, we were more like Isaiah who had such a craving for God to once again display his power and his might and his holiness and his glory that we fell on our faces before God and we stuck our weak little staffs out in that water and we said, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I trust that you are. And the way you do it is going to be perfect. What if we would, would we even be able to handle it when God shows up? See, because when revival comes, it's a fearful experience. Verse 3 says that when God came down, the mountains quaked at his presence. And once again, Isaiah references the experience of Moses and the Israelites. In verse number uh, 18 of Exodus 19, you'll see this on the screen. Here was another moment when the Israelites were out. After they got across the Red Sea right? And they're out in the wilderness for a little while and they're kind of tired of manna and everything. They start getting complaining again. They're like, man, it was better to be back in Israel than to be wandering around. And here's what God says. In verse number 18, Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. And as the sound of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down at Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain and he went up. Did you catch all that? Shaking mountains, smoke, fire, thunder. This is not a meek and mild little God that's our genie in a bottle to help us get what we want here on earth. This is a sovereign Lord over everything with power and might 
If I'm Moses, I'm making sure I'm prayed up before I go up into that hill to talk to God. Right? If I see the mountain shaking, and if I smell smoke, and if I see fire, and God says, Moses, come on up. I'm like, let me, uh, let me, uh, let me rededicate my life real fast before I do. Right? The point is that when God moves, it's no secret. And when God shows up, it shakes the church up. And then when God has a church that's shaken up, it shakes up a community. You see, it's an expectation of a great God. The next thing it is, it's an expectation that is fueled by faith. It's an expectation that is fueled by faith. It's a faith that sees above the circumstance. You ever met somebody who says, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good under the circumstances, right? What's the classic response to that? Well, what are you doing under the circumstances, brother? Come up from above them. That's easier said than done. You know what I want to do when somebody says that? I want to slap them in the face. Right? Because it's real. Sometimes under those circumstances feels like you're buried under an ocean that's buried under six feet of soil that's buried under a mountain. That's how far under the circumstances you can get. But here's the beautiful thing in verse number four. It says that since the beginning of time, Humanity, no matter how hard it has looked, has been able to find evidence of a God who acts more on behalf of them than God Almighty. No matter where humanity has looked, they have never found a God or a being or a situation that works on their behalf except for God Almighty. Every other religion, every other little G God out there you're going to find, you're going to find a God who says, work your way to me. Only in Christianity, only God says, you can't get to me, so I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to send my son. That's the kind of faith, that's the kind of expectation that we need to have, a God, a God of faith that no matter what our circumstance may be, God meets us at that circumstance, and if we will give ourselves to him, he will place us above that circumstance. Church, understand this, if you are in God, you are not under the circumstance, Right? Boy, it doesn't stop us from trying to look, though, for all those other helps, doesn't it? Does it? Especially when it seems like God's moving slower than we need him to move. Isaiah was a man, one of the few in his generation, who saw a picture of God on his throne. And I have a feeling that that was burned into his mind's eye for the rest of his existence. So that when he saw things going on, he's like, ain't nothing bigger than God. It doesn't matter. Man, if God would give us that vision, guess what? It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be great faith anymore, would it? This is one of the reasons I think that Isaiah, in a, in, a, in a country of people who have turned their back on God and have doubted him, he's not doing that because he's seen a vision of just how good God is. And here's what we get today. We may not get that vision unless we've had pepperoni pizza a little too late at night. We may not get strange visions and signs and wonders, but we do have this completed word that paints a beautiful picture of the greatness of our God. And that should fuel our faith. See, his mind's eye always returned to the, turned to the God who was above it all. And this is why it says in the book of Hebrews, faith is the reality of what is hoped for. It is the proof of what is not seen. This is what faith is. Faith is the reality of what's hoped for and it's the proof of what we haven't seen. Church, we have a different scenario today than Isaiah did. Jesus said it himself. He said, blessed are those who have seen and believed in me. But he said, even more blessed are those who have not seen yet still believe. You know what that means? We get an extra dose of confidence and faith given to us because we believe without seeing all of it. 
You see, this is an expectation that is fueled by a great faith in a great God. It's also a faith that is that God is in a faith in God that is persistent. In verse four, we see that God acts on behalf of what? Of those who wait for Him. God acts on behalf of those who wait for Him. One of the hardest struggles of the Christian faith is trusting this unseen God to work in the proper time in the face in the face of everything that we do see. See, sometimes it feels like he's slow, doesn't it? God is great, but let's be honest. How many of you sometimes have had experiences where you say, well, God's kind of slow. He may be great, but he is greatly slow sometimes. It's okay to say that, right? Dad understands. Most of you know that I've been kind of, I've been hunting for a, a, a second job lately. Something's going to kind of allow me to provide for my family right now while we're going through this financial troubles and stuff. And I put in a lot of applications, and it's been a long time since I've heard anything back. And I'm thinking, God, you know what we need. You know we need it yesterday. And you just ain't providing just yet, right? And so what I do is I start, I start doing that. And so then Pastor Derek, it's like I got split personalities. Pastor Derek starts counseling to Derek, Derek, and says, you know that God's going to work when the time is right, don't you? I'm like, yeah, I know that. But my argument, Derek Derek's argument to Pastor Derek's Great advice is it really seems like he's working too slow right now. So Pastor Derek, why don't you shut up and get back in your box? Right? And that's the test of faith though, isn't it? I know what God has promised, but I don't, man, can I keep holding out that he's going to make good on it? So the same thing is the struggles that we're going through at the church. Same things you may be going through in your house. We'd like to see a miracle or an answer yesterday. But God's going to work when God knows it's best to work. He just is. And that sounds like a cop out. No, it's not. It's an invitation to a faith that it's hard. But God's timing should never affect our persistence in his faith. Get that. God's timing should never affect my persistence in faith. It's not if he's going to, or it's not when he's going to work. It's knowing that he is going to work. Isaiah had probably prayed this prayer before. He would probably pray it again. He would be persistent because desperation for God to move leads to a persistence in our faith to continue praying. Some of you have prayed for decades for someone to be saved. Keep praying. But it looks like they're moving in the opposite direction. Keep praying praying. Our big God can catch up when it's time. So we have to have an expectation for God to do great things. And lastly, because I know that I said I was going to be fast and I lied again, all right? An expectation that God will do what is best. It's an expectation that God will do what is best. Look at verse number five. You will become or you welcome the one who joyfully does what is right. Catch this. This is a promise in the midst of a prayer. It's almost like Isaiah is reminding God, hey, remember this. You're going to welcome the one who joyfully does what is right. Look at your man down here, the only one who seems to be doing anything right. You promised you're going to welcome him. And he says, they remember you in your ways. But we have sinned and you are angry. And how can we be saved if we remain in our sins? Isaiah notes God's promise, but he also notes the fact that we've broken our side of the deal sometimes with our sin. See, we 
have to do what's best in the meantime as we pray with expectation. A holy expectation of God means I continue operating as though God is just making everything wonderful at that time. I continue in persistent faith. I continue in consistent praise. I continue in consistent prayer. I continue to do what is right in the meantime because the Bible says God welcomes those who joyfully do what is right. It's speaking of that remnant of God's people. Remember we talked about the remnant back in the book of Romans, didn't we? That no matter how bad things may get and how rebellious generations have turned against God, in every generation God has always seen that there is a remnant of faithful people. When Elijah thought that the whole the whole nation had turned and he was the only faithful one left. What did God tell him? I, he said, Elijah, I have reserved 700 faithful people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Know this, that when you're praying for revival, when you feel like you're the only one, you are not the only one. There is a remnant. And the thing that we're challenged to do here is be part of that remnant. Be part of that faithful remnant in the meantime. Isaiah would continue to beg God for revival, but he would also continue to live righteously until he did. And I hear a lot of people today that bemoan the way things are. Man, it just seems like this one thing after another. It seems like people are moving away from God at lightning speed. And you know what? It seems like they are. And it seems that way because it is that way. Right? You hear people saying that this country is on the verge of moral and ethical and all other, all other versions of collapse. And you know what? It's always the other side of the aisle that's responsible for that. Did you ever notice that? It's always the other guys that's it's their fault for it, politically. My whole life, I've heard people say that God's an inch away from being done with America. What does that really mean, though? What does that mean to say that God is an inch away from being done with America? What's it mean for his church? That's the more important question. What if he is done with America? Let's ask what it means for his church. Right? Might the church endure hardship? Yeah. It actually is foretold that it will. Right? Might the church lose resources? Yeah. Political influence? Yep. Social acceptance? Yeah. Might the church wonder what to do and how to live in a place like that? We shouldn't. Because we're told, here's what it takes to be the church of Jesus Christ. To seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We need more people to say, I'll serve the Lord come what may. And less who say, I'll serve the Lord on a better day. You like that? That was good, wasn't it? No, we need less people, we need more people who will say, I'll serve the Lord, come what may. And less people who will say, I'll serve him when circumstances are more favorable. We hear that all the time, man. Now I'll get back to church, or I'll get back into the word once things slow down. Guess what? There's an enemy of God and of you who's going to make sure that things never slow down. If that's what you're saying it's going to take for you to start walking with the Lord, he'll just make sure that you're never slowed down enough. He will say, this is, this is, as we move to our invitation, there's another thing that we see here that we are to be consistent, but he also gives us this promise that he's going to save those who follow him. Look at that latter part in our, in our text. The last part of that text asks the question, how can we be saved if we remain in our sins? It's a rhetorical question. 
It was a question that Isaiah was applying to his people, right? Because his people had walked from, away from God. And it's like God's, Isaiah knows God's losing his patience. And he says, how can we be saved from this if we don't deal with you and get right with you again? But the question for us today in the New Testament is age is the same. How can I be saved if I don't deal with my sins? And the question is, you can't. Or the answer is, you can't. We can't be saved if we stay in our sins. Romans tells us, we know Romans well, right? All of us have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God, desperately short of God's glory. In other words, we don't deserve the right to see his glory. But because of his grace and his mercy, he has made a way for that sin to be removed so that it doesn't stand in the way of us and God anymore. Thankfully, God's mercy pervades his justice. And as we go to a time of invitation this morning, that's the biggest question that we have to wrestle with. Am I more content to just stay in my sin and deny God or am I desperately needing his touch? God is just and he cannot stand or be a party to sin, but in his mercy he made a way to pardon us from our sin if we'll repent and if we'll come to Jesus. And this doesn't have to be at a time when the mountains are quaking and the water is boiling. It can be a time when you just come to realize if I don't have Jesus, I don't have eternal life. And the Bible says that if we will confess that Jesus is Lord and we will ask God to forgive us of our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and he'll cleanse us from all the sin, all the unrighteousness that separates us from him. We don't do it. All we do is ask. We fall upon his grace. Have you done that? I mean, have you honestly done business with God and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? If you have been saved, that applies to us in this, that if I continue to nurture sin in my life, I continue to just kind of nurture that and, and I begin to walk closer to my sin than I walk closer to my Savior, why is it that we wonder why God won't work? Because we're already walking closer with our real God, which is our sin. If we'll come to him and we'll expect him to do great things, he'll revive our spirit in our soul. So my question this morning is, will you come to him? He'll save you today. It doesn't matter if you've, where you've been, what you've done, or who you've done it with. He'll save you if you'll come to him. If you'll come to him and rededicate, he'll forgive. He'll set you new. He'll send personal revival to your heart. But here's the thing we have to do. We have to come to him. Isaiah had to come to him too and say, Lord, rend the heavens. Come to us. As we bow our head and as we close our eyes this morning, what do you expect from God? What do you expect? It's a question of our faith. Am I willing to take God at his word? Heavenly Father, I pray you'll have your time and way in this invitation and do as you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand today, I'm going to ask you this morning if you would come and respond to God's word. If God's laid upon your heart to just come and pray about a matter, if he's laid upon your heart to come and rededicate your life, to pray, to ask prayer for something. You got something just going on. You want to pray with someone? Grab somebody by the hand and say, let's go pray or pray right where you are. This is a time for us to meet with God. Maybe he's shaking some of those mountains in your life right now. Let him do that and let him come down. Please come if you need to. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. 
or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.